Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today I'm very happy to introduce to you Zach Shaw. Um, welcome, Zach, to the show. Lovely to be on your show. Thank you very, very much for inviting me along. No, thank you, thank you. Now, obviously, I've kind of done it for you, but if you want to introduce to our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Uh, of course. So my name is Zach Shaul. I am the director of Sheldon Wildlife Trust. And for your listeners who don't know who Sheldon Wildlife Trust is, we are a small, both Bayaza and Yaza collection based down in the south coast in Devon with a specialisation on the smaller and more endangered species that you find in zoos. Cracking, cracking collection. And obviously that's where you're at right now, but I'm sure all of the listeners are very eager to hear as this episode's all about the leaders within the industry. You have to get there. You can't just step into that role. You, you have stories to tell, I'm sure. So on that, have you got any stepping stones, any real keystone moments throughout your career of, of where you got to today? So, I mean, it, it can probably start when I was about five years old. Um, and you know, when you were at school and they asked you what you wanted to do, um, apparently my response, I don't recall it, my mum tells me this, that I said I wanted to be a zookeeper or a JCB driver. And I've, I've subsequently learned they're not mutually exclusive, um, but I haven't yet driven a JCB. So it, it was a passion I've had since a child, but I didn't immediately go to university thinking I would end up in zoos. I actually started by doing a chemistry course. And a year in, I went, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I think there'll be a job at the end of it rather than actually doing something I want to do. So I changed over to a, a course that was ecology and conservation. I graduated from that course. Then at the time, personal circumstances, I didn't immediately go into zoos. After a relationship breakup, I moved home and I went, right, this is it. I, I will get a job in a zoo. And as many of the listeners will have been in a similar circumstance, the zoo industry is incredibly difficult to get into. And I didn't have a huge amount of experience. I had some, you know, private keeping experience, but I just hammered applications. And I was lucky enough in the end to actually get a position on the Chester Zoo intern uh, course. And I, it was kind of strange because I applied initially on that intern course to do uh, LVI place. And during the interview there with uh, Penny Rudd, and at the time it was Richard Gibson, who was the curator of LVI, um, they went, the way you talk about breeding programs and things, we, we had an idea to do a, a curatorial assistant intern, but we, we've never fleshed it out. Would you be interested in it? And I said, yes. And I think that saying yes is is kind of a bit of a hallmark to my career is, is that every opportunity that I've been given, I, I've said, yes to and it's something I'd really encourage your listeners to do is put yourselves out there and take on those slightly different opportunities so I, I did the internship for six months um really fortunate during the period it hadn't finished a, a role came up at Twycross the deputy registrar um I got that position and then I was there for seven and a half years 
um, in various capacities at Twycross, but always going back to, to kind of that registrar roots and role that I, I'm quite well known for within the industry. Um, and it, after seven and a half years and lots of exciting things, being involved in Biaza through the, the records working group, I run stud books when I'm in that role. And um, I, I wanted to cut my teeth on Zoom management. And I was looking around for roles and a, a role came up at Lakeland Wildlife Oasis, a, a small Biaza member institution um, up in the Lake District. So I put in for that as, as a manager, interviewed and got it. Um, and, it, you know, th this was a huge change. This was going from being a very specific part of a large organization and team to being the manager of, you know, less than 20 employees. So it was a steep learning curve, but something I really, really enjoyed. And then as we all know one another in the zoo industry, um, Nick Dunn, who was the director at the time at Sheldon, who I knew very well through various Biaza things, um, the job came up for the director of Sheldon. So I texted him and said, A, where are you going? And B, should I apply for this job? And I'll never, ever forget his response was, we need to talk. So I bring him up, had a chat and, and everything and put my application in Um, had a hell of a, a drive to go and do the interview in Devon. I was living halfway between Devon and the Lake District at the time. On my drive back from Devon to the Midlands, where I was stopping that night, I had a phone call saying we'd like to offer you the job as director of Sheldon. And little Zach was thinking, oh my God, two years ago, you were a registrar at Zoo in the Midlands and you've been offered the directorship of a, of a whole zoo. And it was crazy. Imposter syndrome is a thing. If I don't care what people say, it totally is. And it's still to this day, I have moments where I am so lucky to be trusted by the charity, by the trustee at a relatively young age. Don't know how I look a little. I'm not that old. You know, I've been given this opportunity and I'm very fortunate to have amazing team around me and support of trustees to be able to do really, really good things at Shoulder. But yeah, for the listeners, say yes totally say yes to weird and wonderful things if you're thrown an opportunity even if it's outside your wheelhouse take it because the more you do within this industry the more you get to know people doors will open for you and those doors might take a couple of years but it's about being out there and I'm sure you know from the other interviews that you've done other people will have commented on this industry is small we all know each other very very well and if you can get your name out there it's going to stand you in very good stead very uh inspirational um and it, sh it shows that anything is is possible it's a great great story and I guess with that you, you've touched on it already these are, these are, might even repeat what you've just said but if you were to look back at your younger self, do you have any little gems you picked up on the way? And more a personal thing and about saying that yes is I used to have like kind of post uni and during uni have a real fear of failure. And it put me off trying so many different things. And that pressure was from myself. It wasn't any from any external party or force. It was me worrying, am I going to be bad at this? And actually, that's a that was denying myself so many opportunities to try new things that I could have either been abysmal at. And that's fine. Life is about finding what you're good at and enjoying those successes and those failures. But then at some point, it just clicked that actually it doesn't matter if you're not amazing at this. It doesn't matter if you have to try really hard and a couple of times just to crack it it then opens up that those new opportunities to you that you can really go for and think, I'm going to give this a go. Um, and, you know, it's the same for 
so many people out there, I think they really are worried that they're going to make a fool of themselves or, you know, oh, I'm going to be rubbish at this. I, I shouldn't even bother. But I'd completely flip it around and say, you don't know, you might be a world expert on it in a couple of years unless you give it a go and find out. So to, to a younger Zach, it's absolutely don't be worried about failing and failing isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's about experiencing the, the diversity of what life has to offer. And life isn't Disney. Life isn't always about being successful and being amazing. And we can actually learn a lot more about ourselves, about our world and about our, our kind of society and our roles within it by having you know adversity and failures so don't focus on that you need to be amazing at everything live your life to the fullest experience it all and that's when things will start to happen for you great words there and i guess linking to that no one likes making mistakes no one likes getting things wrong and as i say if things going a bit pear-shaped but how have you learned to to turn that into a success and, and turn it into a strength? It, it's always about learning. And I've been really fortunate that I've worked under some fantastic managers during my career who have seen, you know, those those times where things didn't go right as learning opportunities, not necessarily opportunities to reprimand me and, you know, and belittle me and things. So I've, I've been very fortunate in that circumstance where the management above me very, through various parts of my career have gone, yeah, you, you messed up, look, you can learn from this, um, move forward. So it, it's taking as much as you can from those situations where things go wrong um, learning from that, changing how you do things if necessary to ensure that it doesn't uh, happen like that in the future. Sharing your failures as well is really important, I feel, because so many people might be doing the same thing that you had been doing. But if no one set, goes out and out there and says, look, I messed up and this happened, we're just going to repeat ourselves and it's not it we shouldn't necessarily be afraid of sharing our failures the the world has been built on failures until we get successes um but it's about being confident and open and honest enough to be able to do that so it it's you will get there eventually um and being able to to work through those failures and not thinking it's the end of the world because you've cocked up um will help you get through it so, I mean, we've touched on it throughout but the, the biggest part and this leads us into this next section of the, the podcast and that's the building of a team the the team behind you effectively make you strong or weak it is very much a collective as you said you need to share your your weaknesses share your strengths and come together for the collective goal but from your point of view when when employing a keeper and for our listeners for you know people looking to change jobs for people trying to come into the industry what do you look for when employing a keeper and, and what advice would you give to create an all-rounded keeper? Yeah, so I can come from it from a small zoo's perspective, absolutely, in that listeners out there, um, Sheldon Wildlife Trust has five paid staff, myself included. I have a head keeper, an animal um, keeper who also does our education and our um, kind of experience overseeing, a zoo administrator and a bookkeeper who works a couple of hours a week. So we are very, very small employed team. We're very fortunate that we have, you know, nearly 40 volunteers who come and support us. So 
the staff at Sheldon and, and I across small collections in the UK, you become jack of all trades, hopefully masters of some, but uh, not all of them, unfortunately. So, you know, my animal experiences in education keeper, she's expected to be able to be a, a brilliant animal keeper, but also be able to write signage and give fantastic talks. So we're looking at real breadth of skills and we're looking at, you know, those soft skills as well in a small team where you may end up managing volunteers or work experience. Those soft skills of things like people management, communication, time management as well, very important in a smaller team. In, you know, the things that I really, really look for. There's a, something that's that's said in a lot of HR circles is that, you know, hire for attitude and train for skills. So it's about having that right attitude fitting within that organizational ethos. Um, and if you can do that, then that actually, to me personally, is is a huge boon rather than someone necessarily who's coming along with maybe 10 years more experience, all the certifications under the sun. But if they're not going to work well within that small team, a small team who we communicate constantly, we're spinning all those plates simultaneously, that's probably going to cause more problems in the long run, even though they come with a larger volume of experience. Exactly that now. You spoke earlier on about how your team's quite a diverse bunch. They've all got to have their own attributes to bring to the table. But to, to flip that around on you, is there one trait, is there one strength that they all have collectively that, that bring them as together as a whole? Teamwork. Uh, without shadow of that, that ability to work in a team and a small scale team and a team where we can be our true honest selves as well, that we can say, I'm having a really bad day. I, you know, I don't have the headspace for this. Um, so that they, that teamwork and the communication that goes alongside very, very positive uh, teamwork, um, those without a shadow of a doubt are two of the strongest points of what make my team work and what makes Sheldon Wildlife Trust as successful as it is. Sounds perfect. Now, we're heading into these big questions. Um, but the, the first one, quite broad, but over in the USA, over in the AZA, they've done a, a demographic survey of their keepers and have basically seen that the demographic survey roughly sees a checkout age of around 32, give or take. Um, but they seem to also a re-entering age of around the early slash mid 50s. So from that, it's roughly replicated through rough surveys in the in the UK. And we can all assume why that is. It's quite, you know, there's many, many topics that I'm sure you'll go into in a few moments. But with the question being, we're not currently officially classed as a skilled Great. We're, we're classed as labour. Um, from that, do you see that ever changing? And is there any more we can do to maybe save our, our experience? So I think we've got two two things there. We, we've got the idea of uh, zookeepers being classed as, you know, essentially not skilled labour. And then we've also got the idea around job retention within the industry. And they do somewhat go hand in hand when we start thinking about pay and benefits and, and limitations of the industry. To take the first one uh, in terms of zookeepers not being classed as skilled labour, um, it is something that essentially, from my knowledge and experience, that is kind of somewhat coming from government in the way that the government views what our industry does. Obviously, we um, 
that idea that we're still entertainment rather than you know institutions of science or education or conservation that provide you know does enforce some limitations on particularly things in terms of governmental support um that that the zoo industries don't get to benefit from. Saying that there has been, particularly in recent years, that first initially started during the, the COVID pandemic, a real upturn in the amount of political engagement that the UK zoo industry has been doing. And that's all been primarily uh, spearheaded by Biaza. Um, so we're finding now that Biaza and the UK zoo industry's ability to engage with ministers has increased rapidly. And I'm very, very fortunate that I've been invited um, as both the director of Shoulder Wildlife Trust to attend an all parliamentary party group meeting on zoos, which was about the consultation on the new zoo standards, but also attend another one as a Biaza trustee that I also am. And it was really interesting engaging with those ministers and finding that their knowledge of zoos was far better than I previously experienced. So we're slowly getting there. That that is going to tear line, unfortunately. And maybe as a limitation of zoos historically that they haven't necessarily engaged politically to make the government and, and their local MPs realise that we are very important institutions. And the real hope is, in, in my mind, in the next, you know, hopefully within the next five years, is that when large decisions are being made by government that Biaza and the UK zoo industry are consulted on this so that we can actually have that seat at the table, be experts. And I think when we start to be viewed as experts, I'm hoping that the government will then start to realise, hey, zoos aren't just a good day out. They actually are bringing a huge wealth of knowledge um, along to it, to what we can hopefully develop and then implement as policy in the UK. When we then think about staff retention, so staff retention is something that uh, speaking to a number of friends who run zoos or in senior management positions is a problem that we're facing. But it's actually something that we're the UK is facing more broadly currently is that during the COVID pandemic, a huge amount of people went, I've lived my life a certain way and I really don't like it anymore. And I'm going to change my job. I am going to move house because I don't want to live in a big inner city anymore. So I don't think it's the zoo industry in isolation that is finding a staff retention problem and also a hiring problem. It is actually something that a whole UK economy at the moment is really struggling with. That doesn't then make it easier for us, for the zoo industry to then go, well, it's everyone's problem. It, it, it you know, it'll recover with time. Absolutely, the pay within zoos, and if you look on any zoo uh, job advert, if you look at a starting salary for the most junior role of the keeper, that is below the national um, average for uh, um, for unskilled role. So I think zoos need to take a careful look at how they are remunerating staff and also thinking about those other things I've touched upon, such as mental health um, and ensuring that staff are looked after, looked after not only financially, but also are shown that they're the institutions they work for care about them. I know there is there the somewhat of a sentiment online on certain uh, social media groups that zookeepers are seen to be replaceable. A very good zookeeper is really hard to replace. So it's a real shame that these people are finding that maybe in some institutions they are felt as, you know, if they leave, they'll just get replaced by somebody else. I would hope that my staff really uh, feel that 
their position within the organization is very much valued and valued not only for the position that they're in, but for the individuals that they are. I'm lucky with a small team. I, I know all my staff very personally. That's not as easy for those bigger organizations that uh, may, you know, have much larger um, keeping teams that, you know, the director probably won't know everyone individually. But there is a, a somewhat to say that engaging with your with your people with your staff on a personal level can really assist with people feeling valued. We are in a difficult position though with when we're talking financially about you know increasing zookeepers wages significantly. We have as an industry just come out of COVID pandemics where we we were pretty sure at some point if it carried on a number of zoos were going to have to be forced to make very tough decisions. And we did see some organisations make the decision not uh, to reopen. One very local to me was Living Coasts, owned by the Wild Planet Trust. We've then walked out of that into the cost of living crisis, where absolutely we know the cost of energy uh, is skyrocketed, the cost of materials, the cost of the food we feed our animals has, has gone up. Um, and our keepers, you know, living costs have gone up as well. Um, and I know that some organisations um, implemented pay rises earlier than the traditional April date to try and buffer that. And I think zoos having to be more on the ball, more active and engaged with how uh, the, the cost of living is impacting their staff needs to happen. Um, and we we can't turn a blind eye and think that everyone is replaceable because at some point there isn't going to be anyone left to replace them. You're hitting that on the head there. Is it? I think the biggest message as well alongside that is that there are, you know, there are people out there trying to make this change. And I, I like referring back to this. It's a picture which goes around social media all the time about what my mum thinks I do, what my friend thinks I do, what I think I do. That's pretty much sadly where we're at is sadly right now. No one really knows apart from us what we actually do um so i think as you said as you mentioned earlier on it's about almost um speaking a bit louder and, and shouting about what we actually do because we do some quite amazing things oh incredibly and I, it's a it's a point i've said for years throughout my career zoos are really good at doing things we're absolutely awful i think anyone we do good things with captive breeding programs and reintroductions and follow-up research on them we're, you know, really seeing a push into native species uh, in UK zoos um, and looking after the nature we've got on our doorstep. But so rarely do you see that in the headlines. So rarely do you hear, you know, the public talking about, oh, isn't it incredible that Wildwood are, re you know, reintroducing bison into the UK um, ecosystems? Beaver reintroductions happening up and down the UK. So we we absolutely need to get better at getting these messages out there. And maybe becoming a bit more bullish with it as well and going, no, we are really doing good things. Um, you need to listen to us. Zach, you're making my job very easy on this podcast because you've led me straight to my next question. And that next big question is about this changing of the zoo, the, the license, the guidelines, which come alongside the way we run. Now, there's many things that that's looking into and it is still ongoing to what exactly that's going to look like. But one of the big aspects is conservation. And like you've just spoke about, uh, it isn't spoken enough about, but there is a lot of good. And I guess the question I'm going with this is uh, there is a change which is coming, which is saying that you can no longer simply fund conservation. You have to do conservation and prove your, your basically conservation 
efforts. Now, with that, and I've I've got a feeling I'm going to open up a can of worms by asking this. But we'll, we'll go there now. If you had unlimited funds and, and resources, what would you do? But more, I guess, more prominently, what are you already doing? Uh, so I'm really fortunate that I inherited Sheldon Wildlife Trust with an absolutely fantastic conservation portfolio. We are known as a small zoo that does a lot of active conservation work. So we typically support eight projects a year. Some of those are very long-standing relationships, the longest standing being Save Vietnam's Wildlife, which is a project linked to Austin civets that we have at the zoo um, and we've been involved with for over 20 years now. Another really long-running one is supporting the Little Fireface project which is coordinated by Professor Anna Nakaris from Oxford Brooks University and is working with the critically endangered Java slow loris in Java. And we use our own slow lorises at the zoo as storytellers for that. I feel that Shoulder Wildlife Trust, even though as a small organisation and some of the conservation projects that we do is just supplying money. Some of the others is being really heavily involved in it. So when we think about the Little Fireface project, I was very fortunate to have Professor Nakaris come visit just the other week. Um, and we did a huge amount of talking about potential grant funding in the future, further collaborations. But it's also, you know, these field sites really struggle to get certain supplies and they do a lot of slow loris rehabilitation out there in Java. And we supply them with things, microchips they can't get. So they can't microchip all their animals that they're using to, you know, tag and, and geolocate. Things like uh, gum arabic they used to really struggle with, but they found a sourcing country. Things like uh, vitamin and mineral powders like Nutribal that they can use on rehabilitated loris they can't get. So we supply all this free of charge we just give it to them and it then just helps make that difference out there when they're working in the field and that's been echoed from a number of conservation projects I've been engaged with is you can send them the money and that can be great but sometimes sending supplies can be even more beneficial and when we start looking about say Vietnam's wildlife though and how heavily involved we are over three years ago I was very fortunate enough to be invited out to Hanoi to join in the conservation action planning meeting for our and civets and I, I don't think we can get more heavily involved in conservation than saying that you helped co-author the conservation action plan and what's incredible because my name begins with a z and they did it alphabetically by first name i am the final name on the uh, list of um attendees and, and collaborators and to see my name with shoulder wildlife trust on a document that is a global action plan is something i'm immensely proud of a, a, a fantastic opportunity for a small zoo to be engaged with that would i change too much about what we did if i had unlimited money I have a bit of an issue with that potential change that zoos are going to be enforced to kind of create conservation projects. There are incredible conservationists working in situ that come from those range countries. They know the political, cultural and biological landscape of those countries far better than I will ever get. I would much rather the government and, and DEFRA acknowledge funding and true involvement in well-established in existing in situ conservation projects be valued as conservation. I can well I could tomorrow go set up a slow loris project. I'd be crap at it. I'd much rather support, you know, Professor Nakaris and her team 
the longest running slow loris conservation project in the world i'd rather support her and look at further ways of collaborating whether we do huge amounts of education here in the uk or in you know sending people over to do skills enhancement and capacity building out there in java with their education teams I think that's the much more logical way to move forward than zoos being forced to suddenly start springing up conservation projects left, right and centre. And when I was at the uh, one of the all parliamentary party group meetings uh, representing Sheldon, that's actually one of the pieces that I spoke on and spoke directly to ministers and said the likes of these collaborations, long term existing collaborations with world experts are at jeopardy if DEFRA the current wording of the consultation legislation on conservation projects moves forward and goes ahead. And, you know, it was a fantastic example that was given to me by Lynn Whitnell from Paradise Wildlife Park. They are doing a huge amount with the IUCN Red List um, and a, a pay a member of staff to do Red List assessment. They are recognised as the first UK centre for species survival. Under our interpretation of the new standards, that wouldn't count as conservation. And the ministers did go, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. They're, they're actively contributing towards conservation, but because it doesn't fit into this quite narrow and restrictive definition that was in the consultation, um, it, it wouldn't count. The thing is, that was a consultation. We know that huge numbers of zoos provided feedback in that consultation so much so that we haven't actually had an update from DEFRA on where that consultation is. So I, I am really hopeful that they, they will have taken on board, essentially the experts ourselves, that conservation is happening. Yes, we need to promote it better. We can always do more of it and we can always improve how we do it. But don't tell us that the conservation work that some of our institutions have been doing isn't conservation work when it clearly is. And don't be naive to the fact that supporting world experts in the field when done appropriately and correctly and not just sending the money and saying, I've done conservation work. It's far more than that. It's about aligning that with, you know, your collection plan, your signage, your education programs and everything else that you have with your zoo. That then is a very clear and defined pathway of how you're, in, you know, involved in conservation and ensuring that there's um, applications here in the UK on your site and engaging with visitors about it. We'll wait and see what comes from it. I'm sure there will be lots more to come now. I said it on the last question. You've actually just done it. You've just dropped in a very little hint to that third and final question. We're nearly there. We've nearly battled through these big questions. And we're going to move on to, like you've just indicated there, the, the collection plan. It's something that it doesn't matter what you do within a the industry, whatever you do within a zoo, whether you're a zookeeper all the way up to a director level, everyone wants to be part of it. Everyone wants to bring in their favourite animal. Everyone wants to have their say. But obviously, there's so much more to it than simply just picking an animal because you like it. Now, with regards to, to your collection plan, with regards to where you're, you're working, how is it unique within the industry? And if you have the option to, to make change happen or, or maybe look back at some of the things you've done, is there anything you would change? I, to be honest, I inherited a wonderful collection. Um, you know, the, the USP of Sheldon is focusing on 
rare and endangered species um, from three key areas, South America, Madagascar and Asia. And then our conservation projects are aligned with those um, and, and use a, a number of our animals in the collection as figurehead and ambassadors for for those conservation projects so we can engage with our visitors so yeah i you know i work with incredible species like alston civets and loads of really rare and endangered calatrichids and, and lemurs and then link them to fantastic conservation projects we're involved in i i, I am lucky in that regard and we're very lucky as well that you know 55 percent of the collection at Sheldon is classed as vulnerable or um up to critically endangered in the wild and over 60 percent of the collection are part of ES eeps and esbs so i you know I came in and I, I tweaked. Of course I tweaked. I'm a new director. Of course I'm going to play and, and move things around. But I, I was really fortunate. But I think what was really interesting that you said, James, is, you know, everyone wants to be involved in it. And I know a number of collections, the, the animal collection plans like this hallowed document that is kept in a vault and no one sees it and all these things. I, mine's is about as far removed from that as possible. I'm a small team. I got everyone involved in it. We went to the pub and we went through the collection plan and we went, well, what targets does this hit? Well, OK, cool. Can it hit any targets if we change our education program? Oh, no, it can't. Cool. Do we need to look at phasing this out? And there was so there is complete buy in from all of my staff about the species that we hold. And, it, you know, we all know that collection plans change and they, they change with as there's changes at the EASA level as changes in regional collection plans in changes within the where animals lie within terms of their RUCN classification or the focus of what we need to be doing so there's a level of needing to stay dynamic as, with it as well and not thinking you can write this document chuck it to the side for five years and then revisit it later it, it isn't it changes with with time it changes with priorities um, but it comes back to, you know, one of the benefits of being a smaller zoo is I, the moving parts are slightly less than a big zoo. So I can kind of make these tweaks and changes. And absolutely, there's, there's been cases where I've gone, I really like that species. Can I, can I fit it in the collection plan? And then my head keeper is fantastic of saying to me, uh, we're not getting any more animals, Zach, because I will make you look after them. And I'm like, I haven't got time to do that. So we'll 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 put that aside and we'll go to one in one out rule because we're, we're pretty much at capacity in terms of, of space within the zoo. Um, but it was also just making these changes when I came in. I came into a collection of over 10 species of amphibian, a frog, which is great. The amphibian crisis, chytrid fungus, everything else. You know, wonderful that we could do all this, but to a person, to a member of the public, there's only so many types of frog they can see before it was just another frog. So it was just looking at, you know, we have this small tropical room, diversifying that collection in there, bringing in snakes that the collection hadn't had for a number of years, but making the snake fit for what we we're about at Sheldon. So we didn't go for a royal python or anything like that. We went for a Savu Island python a small species um, endemic to just this this small area in um, off the archipelago in Indonesia and it's endangered so it's we have huge diversity within zoo collections I know that there tends to be some people to think that we're actually going to really homogenize collections that everyone's going to be the same 
um, because Yaza and all the breeding programs and, and all this. But actually, there is so much diversity in zoos just here in the UK before we start thinking over into Europe. So zoos, it's one of the joys of zoos, I think, is that we're all slightly different. Our collection plans are all slightly different. But if any listener out there ever gets an opportunity to be involved in collection planning, even if to just sit and, and speak to cura you know curatorial team about it, absolutely. Or even ask. The, the worst that can happen is you could be told no. You know, so it, it, it's something that I really underpins. A strong collection plan underpins so much else that zoos do because it feeds into your education. It feeds into your conservation, into your research and so much more. A great answer. And it's great to hear you, you, everyone's on board and everyone's uh, getting their opinions on board. That's, that's some, some cracking stuff. Now, you'd be happy to know we've we've conquered the big questions. We're through. OK, we're on to the, the straight and narrow at the end. Um now, th this is a portion of the podcast we call the quick fire rounds. Listeners will quickly be learning. This very much is not a quick fire round, and we'll see how quick fire they actually are. Um, now, now the first one is quite a simple one, and that is, what is your favourite animal? Bearded pig. Yeah, yeah, good shout. Good. Any reason, or just bearded pig? I really, really like sewer day. I really like pigs. I've never worked with them. For my birthday last year, my girlfriend got me a Pigs of the World poster. It's incredible. I went, don't have pigs, went and sat in the uh, sewer day uh, tag meeting at Yaza last year because I had a free slot. Just really like them. Um, okay, so... Best side of the industry? The collaboration. Absolutely. The the ability to pick up my phone and speak to experts in so many different fields. And we all want to help each other and look after each other. Now, is there anything that you feel we need to improve? Oh, what we need to work on. Um, uh, celebrating our successes both individually um, with our, our team, within our organisation, but also celebrating one another's successes as well. Sure. Now, this one, I have set you up to fail because this is not a quick question answer. This shouldn't really be in this section, but I put it in there. And that is, what is your top tip for well-being and mental health? Um, it goes back to what I said earlier, making time for yourself. Um, it's not being selfish, um, looking after yourself, doing things for you. And um, when, you know, people think doing things for themselves is selfish, it really isn't. You are there constantly. You're the only person there when you are born. You're the only person there when you die. You have to live with yourself through the entire journey of life. Invest in yourself, invest in your mental health. And that can happen in so many different ways. It can be from teams that you, you know, your peer networks, your friends, all these different things, talking to them, engaging with them, talking about mental health proactively and in a positive way. No one should be ashamed that they have mental health problems. It's something I have suffered with previously. And I'm very open and honest with my team, with peers about it as well. It's nothing I'm ashamed of. Um, and so just being your true genuine self, making time for yourself, using your friends and your support networks. This isn't one tip. This is like a myriad of tips here for you, James. Um, and and yeah, we'll stop, stop with that. That's enough tips. <laughs> yeah, plenty there. I did tell you I was setting you up to fail, so you're absolutely fine. Now, the next one, what zoo globally would you like to visit and why? Singapore, uh, because they've got loads of weird stuff and cool stuff. And no, um, Singapore, I just think they have a fantastic ethos of using their 
location in the world, their uh, climate to exhibit species that either we don't keep in Europe or the UK in really interesting and naturalistic ways. So it's absolutely a collection that I need to get over and see. Sure, that one's definitely coming up quite a few times, and especially as you've got four to pick from. It's not just one. Oh, yeah. When I say Singapore, I mean all of them as well. It's not just I'll just go to one. You know, all of them take a whole, you know, some people, you know, will say, oh, I'm going to do a, a stopover when I'm flying and, and go visit Singapore Zoo. And I'm like, you need to take a week and do the whole thing. And then the food culture of Singapore is incredible as well. So it would be an amazing holiday. No, for sure. For sure. Now, this is almost putting on your mystic hat, effectively. In 20 to 30 years, do you still see zoos being the same as we see them today? This is another setup to failure, James. This is like a huge topic <laughs> about where, I did where tell do you. we view zoos being in 20 to 30 years. Will zoos exist? Yes, absolutely. Will zoos be doing the same things that we're doing today? I think they'll change somewhat. I think technology is something to watch in terms of how we interact with um, our visitors. I think zoos can really look at how technology is being embraced in other visitor um, attractions, but also technology at large when we start thinking about um, virtual reality and augmented reality and how we can really take that level of immersiveness, that huge one step further. If you want to show someone what it's like out trekking for uh, tigers out in the wild, what better way of doing that than putting a VR set and putting them out there doing it? And I think it's something that zoos can really push forward with, with their engagement. I think technology is also going to have huge amounts of impacts on animal welfare as well. And then I think that in terms of how, what what a zookeeper looks like in the future is going to continue that evolution of what we've spoke about in terms of hopefully being recognised as skilled labour at that point, but also being you know researchers, um, fantastic animal trainers, um, advocates, incredible public speakers and educators. So technology is my big thing of how the industry is going to change in the coming years. Yeah, no, great, great shout out. We're nearly there. We're on that second to last question. This is actually turning into one of my favourite questions in the podcast, and that is, who's your idol within the industry? I find this question really, really hard, James, if I'm being honest, because I, it's like there's lots of incredible people out there. But it, I find it really difficult to pick one person and go, oh, yeah, they're, they're really, really my idol. Um, it, it's one that I've really tussled with in terms of like, and for so many different reasons, there's people that have done one-off amazing projects. And then there's people with huge legacies of work that they've done over years and years of work. I think, you know, someone that I think has in, in recent years done incredible work is uh, Radoslaw over at uh, Razlov Zoo. So this was quite a rundown uh, Polish city-owned zoo and I I'm fortunate to have visited it a number of times and one of his legacies is not only an absolute incredible animal collection but he managed to do one of the largest developments in a Polish zoo ever with their Afroquarium exhibit and it is just mind-blowing it is on you know a, a truly top tier European level uh, level of exhibit and he he really took that zoo on a massive massive journey it, it, not across the, the longest length of time 
So, um, you know, Radislaw is retired from that post now, but really has um, done incredible work. But he, he hasn't given up his work either. He has now become the director of the um, EPRC Centre in Vietnam that do huge amounts of work with uh, rare Langer and Gibbon species in Vietnam. Um, and back to his roots, he he absolutely loves Vietnam and Laos and the, the rare and incredible species over there. Some very kind words there. Now... I think this is going to be the hardest question of the whole podcast, personally, and that is because I'm going to ask from you, Zach, to sum up the industry in only three words. Cool. I've done you. You let me prepare for this, James. Of course, I've prepared for this one. Uh, the three words that I have chosen to summarize the UK zoo industry is crazy, inspiring, caring. That sums it up perfectly. Now, Daddy, that is bringing us to the end of this podcast. I'm sure I can bring together all the listeners with myself it's been a, a real honor and a privilege having you on this lovely uh, episode um thank you so much for coming on zach it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for inviting me along i've absolutely loved it um and so thank you to all your listeners out there as well i hope they've enjoyed my ramblings of uh, the director of a small little zoo with my weird journey of how i got there no we'll hopefully get you on again very very soon thank you very much james no worries take care and that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.